Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 209. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss Mickey, the story of a mouse. New documentary that dropped on Disney Plus in conjunction with Mickey's birthday. Yes, perfect lead in for the 100 year celebration. Yeah, so the last time we discussed something that was this Mickey centric, I think, um, other than Mickey's Christmas Carol, of course, was the Mickey 90 when they did the television special for his 90th birthday. Coincidentally, that's when we were in California going out to Disneyland for the first time and getting ready to do the D23 tour of the Disney Studios. And I remember thinking at the time and discussing it after that Mickey 90 was a little lackluster. Yeah, I remember we weren't really feeling the performances. I mean, to be fair, we had just flown to California that day. I think we were a little bit jet lagged, but that's why we wanted to stay in and watch it, you know, before we launched into this very Disney centric trip. Uh, I can't believe that was four years ago already at the very start of Monoreal Radio. It was like our ninth episode or something like that. And I believe that was the same night we had Salt and Straw for the for first, the first time. time. And look yep. at us now. Look at us now. Available at our leisure over at Disney Springs. By the way, good hack if you don't know about it. If you're local or if you just have a good cooler, you can go in and grab the pints. You don't need to wait on that line to sample the ice cream. You can just go right to the fridge, check out. Nobody has done. to know. Yes, and be <laughs> done. Although I I haven't seen the line quite as big. I feel like the hype is dying down a little bit. Not that it won't be successful, but I think like the gotta have it, gotta try it, gotta get there. Um, I feel like that's starting to wane a little bit. It could also be because we're getting into what is going to be a slower season at the parks anyway. I don't know. We haven't been over there, and they have that Thanksgiving sampler menu. I feel like that draws a huge crowd. Well, I guess we're going to find out soon enough, but let's stay on task here and talk about this documentary, um, The Story of a Mouse here. Um, I mean, look, if you guys have followed us for a long time, we know we usually give you the plot and then we break it down and we discuss. We're not going to do that with this because what's interesting about this is we did break down the timeline for... Uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty. But what's different about Waking Sleeping Beauty, uh, Beauty versus this, Waking Sleeping Beauty almost feels like a made-for-Hollywood film, the way that that kind of unfolds. Right, because going in, you know that the company was on the brink of bankruptcy how many times, so you know that there's going to be very much a high-low, high-low, and that is how they unravel that story. Um this, for as much as, you know, I think the average Disney fan knows about Walt's journey to establish this company, we all know that he had his fair share of setbacks as well. Um, it's not quite the same, I guess, because this is Walt and Mickey's ascent to greatness and we know they're going to get there versus seeing what Walt built almost lost and, and slipped through the company's fingers at how many different points through through the latter history of it. Right. Um, so I don't think that there would have been any benefit from telling the Mickey story in that way, especially because it's such a celebration of the character. It It's not uh, 
the same cautionary tale that Waking Sleeping Beauty is. The other thing is that this documentary is not... It's 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 Mickey centric, right? Like if you first off, and it's I, I'm not trying to gloss it over because the man was a visionary and he changed the world. How many times can you hear the same story about Marceline, Missouri, the train ride from Manhattan, Mortimer Mouse? You know, you've heard it so many times that it, it at this point it kind of goes without saying. I feel. They do talk about it a little bit here, but they don't lean into it quite as much because the other thing is that I realized on the second viewing of it is that even though Mickey Mouse is a character that came from the mind of Walt Disney, this is not a documentary about Walt Disney. Right. It's about Mickey Mouse. And I was surprised to learn, and and we'll discuss it, you know, in just a few moments here as we really start to kind of dig into our notes and what surprised us and what stood out. I was surprised to see how many low points they had for this character. That's what I think the most interesting part of this documentary was. Right, because we knew about Walt's low points, but certainly not how this character sort of took the hit for a lot of um, not-so-idyllic times in America. We'll put it that way. Sure. Um, But yes, we will start with... Uh, preceding the trip to Marceline, Missouri, uh, they s- open with, of course, my favorite quote. It all started with a mouse. Um, I've talked about it before, uh, but for those who are new here, the reason that this is my favorite quote is because I feel like it has a dual meaning. I think Walt's intent was to remind everyone how much can come from this one little drawing that he just scribbled down one day but the other side of that coin is look what did come of it and don't forget your humble beginnings and I think now more than ever we need to remember that yeah um the the film does open with what is I I hate to say it's the most fake Mickey Mouse meet and greet of all time where children not that children are ever not happy to see him but they're running up to him on main street in front of the castle that meet and greet does not exist actually i really love that they did that i mean i think you know you might argue that it's a little cheesy but i think they really captured that moment of the first time that you meet mickey when you're a child i mean because really when you're that young you're not going to like these blockbuster films. You don't know the difference between Brad Pitt and Chris Hemsworth. All you know is Mickey. He is your movie star. It is such an oh my God moment of meeting this larger than life persona. And that's just if you're watching him in TV and film. If you're so fortunate where, you know, your grandparents or your parents gave you like a Mickey plush or toys you know, he's just everywhere. So when you meet your hero like that, I think they did a fantastic job of capturing that moment. And I'm glad that they started with the phenomena. The only thing that I was a little bit surprised at was that we didn't see more familiar faces um, in these this first round of interviews. Right. Um, I understand, again, like you said, it's not a documentary about Walt Disney, but like I was really surprised that they didn't tap into, you know, the Imagineers that have 
that they always tap for interviews that have become very recognizable, like a yes. Tony Baxter or a Joe Rohde. Um, or the the biggest miss for me was not having Don Hahn a part of this. He, I mean, the man is a Disney legend as of a couple of months ago, and he's been with the company so long and he's meant so much to them. You know, he carries the torch, you know, for Walt Disney, I, I think in a very similar way that Bob Iger does, and that's mm-hmm. why Iger's back now. I am surprised to see that he was not a part of this as well or even you know the celebrities that are really known for loving disney like your neil patrick harris's your josh gads your john stamos um you know just just people like that who embrace everything that disney means up to and including mickey's history um and instead i mean i i like that they gathered you know average people who have a story and a personal attachment to Mickey but some of them were kind of off-putting like the one guy in the beginning was like oh my god Mickey's everywhere leave me alone I know that that's a Gen Z thing I get it and I hate to sound like an old lady but like I I get that it's a phrase but it was just very off-putting, and it didn't sound very polished to lead off a documentary like this. Yeah, and it almost bats lead off with, uh, welcome to the Mickey documentary, we're over it. That's kind of like how it sets up, right? Yes, yeah. But with that being said, I do like the fact that some of the people that were involved in those sit-down interviews were make-a-wish kids that were telling their stories later on because that's miraculous that they're here to tell that story. So And how Mickey helped them through a very difficult time. They didn't pick influencers that are here for their photo op. Yeah, I was very happy with that. And it's always nice to see Eric Goldberg doing hand-drawn animation. Uh, I was not expecting that at all. I didn't know that they were going to weave in the production of this short into the history and that I liked telling that parallel story of these three current animators trying to replicate what was done so many years ago. And it is only three of them now. What used to be hundreds of people is now down to three. For a minute, for a minute, Mickey short, 1500 drawings done by these three. It's an incredible achievement. Yeah. I love the breakdown of the brave little tailor as they're sort of going through the opening credits and Eric Goldberg's uh, voiceover is starting, um, they show, you know, they animate those original cells, but just so that you can see what the original sketch was and then they they blew it up to like a life-size giant. It, that was very cool how they did that. Yeah. And what I love is as soon as you get through that opening and you're right, it was brilliant that they were going and weaving the story of Mickey around the story of putting this short together because they are, the point of the short is to show Mickey through the years. Right. Working in reverse order, uh, funnily enough. So you are kind of going in order of Mickey's life, his timeline, to get to ultimately what's going to be this finished project. So I thought that instead of like telling the story and being like, oh, and by the way, we're doing this. Yeah, Like at the end, it was a unique way of weaving them in and out. But you get through that introduction and you go to Marceline, Missouri. What I'm happy about here is, you know, they talk about and they're like, of course, you know, we all know about Marceline, Missouri. Something that I've never seen before in any of the documentaries is they actually go to the farm. 
Yes. I love the fact that we finally get to see the farm. What was really interesting to me was to learn that Walt was only in Marceline for about five years. I thought that that was like his whole childhood. I know the family moved around a little bit, but for a place that was so formative for him, I thought he had spent more time there. Well, I think you we assume that, but it's because so much of his inspiration came from laying in that tall grass under that dreaming tree of his, and he would just see insects and animals, and he, he would sketch them, and they said, and then he would go to his sister at the end of the day, and he would show the sketches and make a story out of it. So there was just so much stimulus there for him, mm-hmm. and, and he self-taught himself so much just by observing that you're right. You would think that he would have spent so much time there, but he was there. He was in Kansas City. They were out in California. He was, he was very much a nomad for most of his life, but those formative years as a youth just had such an impact. I mean, the the five years that he was there changed the world. Let's just call it what it is. Right. And normally, I think the association is also that Marceline was an inspiration for the parks, that idyllic Main Street USA is, you know, it's it's what he longed for was going back to his childhood. But I didn't realize the farm itself was such an inspiration with these little sketches. Right. Do you have anything else on Marceline? Because we're not there for all that long. No. Okay. Let's go into California now, where they have what is a very interesting set choice, at least on the surface, where they're in this tattoo shop, and somebody's (laughs) getting a Mickey tattoo, and next door is a skateboard shop, and I'm I'm sitting here wondering, why are they in a tattoo parlor right now? Why Why are they in a skateboard shop? And it's not until after the fact that they tell you this is the original studio. It's a great reveal, and I love that they incorporated this. How do you feel about it not being a historically protected space? I'm sure that once their lease is up, it will be. Um, Because in Kansas, I think, um, they they recently got the rights back to the building. I think they're going to make it a historical landmark. That corner shop where one of his early... I think, was that where he founded the company with Roy? I believe so. Um, Yeah, that's going to be a landmark now. But I also think that until now... With so many Disney buffs, so many historians paying so close attention, and now obviously a hundred year legacy of this company, you know, back in the 80s, people weren't really looking at it like right, that. Right. It was the Mecca in Burbank with the seven dwarves holding up the roof, and that was it. I don't think it ever really occurred to anybody to to go back to all these buildings and make sure that they're protected and, you know call it what it is we can make them a historical landmark put some of Walt's early sketches and Mickey memorabilia in there and make money off of it right um what I thought was interesting as well we talked about the train ride right and how we all know the story of the train ride but this and remember this is on Disney plus right this isn't something that's on PBS or, or or something this is something that that the Disney company has produced they actually call the train story into question. I don't like that at all. Not that they included it, because if we are questioning it, then great, don't gloss over it. I just don't like that we're questioning it. I think when they did that, 
I immediately knew this documentary is going to be very different. Yes. From a lot of other documentaries that you've seen Disney put out that is a reflection of itself, right? Like, Disney distributed Waking Sleeping Beauty, but they did not make it. They didn't make it. That was the animators and Don Hahn. But I always, it's what I respect about that documentary so much is that they were not afraid to show the good, the bad, and the ugly. And from this moment, that's kind of what this documentary does as well. And and that's why I, it piqued my interest immediately as soon as they brought the train story into question. The only thing that I don't really like, though, is that we don't get more of a resolution. Yeah, they, they kind of just say, maybe it's a myth, maybe it's not. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Right. That literally is like... I'm summing it up, but it's basically what they say. And I get it. I mean, it is such a fairy tale. And I think that that's why people have leaned on it so much that, you know, Walt lost the rights to Oswald and he was scorned. But, you know, he did what he does best. He pulled up his bootstraps and he made something incredible when he was at his lowest point. And I think that's why the story has always been told that way, because, you know, who better than to have... You know, are you going to believe everything this company is selling you if the man himself didn't go through something like that? So I totally understand why it has been explained that way for, for however many years. But it's like if you are going to call it to question, you need to tell us why. And it it speaks to a bigger picture that with all of these deep dives and research and podcasts and documentaries now, do we... Are we ever going to have common knowledge again no. that we can all agree on? No. Probably not. The answer is no. There's too much content and there's too much bias. And too many honestly. opinions. Correct. And opinion and fact, the line between the two has become so blurred. Yes, exactly. But that's another conversation for another day. Um, do you have anything... Before we get to Mickey and the Depression... Do you have anything that stuck out to you that they discussed or that we learned before we get to the Great Depression? What I like is the way that they led us there. Um, I think it was really smart to show the demand of these Mickey cartoons prior to the major studio releases because I think that people who aren't as familiar with the history are just going to assume that Mickey's popularity was driven by the merchandise. I mean, I think, you know, again, even somebody with your average knowledge would know that Mickey was popular way before the parks. Um, But I don't think that they realized how much of a movie star he was in his own right outside of any other animation that Disney was doing. You know, there wasn't, a lead-in to Snow White. Snow White was just the feature, but there wasn't a Mickey cartoon before it. Mickey was playing before these live-action Hollywood classic movies, and and that's really what drove the popularity. Yeah, and then the you know the double feature for the for the children once the Great Depression happened because it it was at one time cheap entertainment, um, which is kind of funny. <laughs> you think during the Great Depression, the worst economy in the history of mankind that you could still afford to go to a movie 
and see a double feature. And now if you want to go to the movies, it's like $20 a ticket. Yeah, I thought that was kind of a weird juxtaposition that they right? would. I, I mean, if that's if that's what was happening, then sure. But whenever I learned about the Great Depression in school, it, it wasn't like, OK, well, the kids didn't have much to do so all they could afford was a movie like to me that seems like an expensive leisure activity when they're saying that that half of america is homeless on the streets and doesn't know where their next meal is coming from i don't really buy that they're giving their kid a dime to go see a movie right exactly you can't afford bread for the family but you're gonna go send your kid to watch mickey mouse and charlie chaplin (laughs) i i think that's more a a critique of the storytelling than it is I'm not questioning the history of it but I think this was just kind of a weird explanation as far as the storytelling goes here the more interesting thing to me was that at the time Mickey was a reflection of America during the Great Depression yes and and you and you even saw like some of his shorts he was homeless with Pluto and yeah Walt was very much they they talk about it later how Mickey kind of becomes the everyday common man. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna put a pin in that until we get to a very specific point later. But I think it's interesting that Walt Disney started planting those seeds that early on. And part of the reason why people took to Mickey Mouse so much was because other than being the eternal optimist, they made it a character that you could relate to because even though it's a cartoon mouse. He's and he, and he does have some zany activities. We're not all flying a plane and picking up a cow and you know running a steamboat and all this nonsense. But but the fact that you could find something in him that was a reflection of yourself that was relatable was something that I never knew was such a big thing during those depression years. I knew more in the World War era that Mickey did become you know, sort of a, I mean, he was very symbolic, but I had no idea that he was such a beacon of hope during the depression. And I love that. I love that. That's what he embodies because of course, like you said, he is the eternal optimist. Um, But I like that he gave everyone something to believe in, not just kids. And that's why it really bothers me now when, you know, you get all of these people saying that, Oh, Disney adults are cringe. No, like this is what you love about Disney. So before you go pointing fingers like that, know what the history means and and know why the love goes so deep. The other thing that I was very interested to learn is that the ascension of Goofy and Donald not only overtook Mickey Mouse, but existed because of Mickey Mouse. Because when Mickey took off in the Depression and became so popular and he was that beacon of hope, We've talked in the past about how the new Mickey Mouse cartoons feel like the very old, original Mickey Mouse shorts where he was mischievous, right? And Mm -hmm. he would cause trouble, and he'd find himself into trouble, and he'd get angry. They made him so sterile for such a long time that Donald became his anger, Goofy became his clown side, and Mickey was just a straight man, and... It didn't sit well with audiences, and that's why those two characters took off. It is so interesting that Donald and Goofy came from that necessity that, you know, they had to show the sides of Mickey that that character could no longer embody. But it really did create a launch pad for how the character changed because... Now, Donald and Goofy are becoming so popular, and Walt's like, well, what about Mickey? So that's what gave him the idea for Fantasia, which 
we have talked about on the show before when we reviewed it, that was supposed to be, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was supposed to be a full-length feature. Um, but because of the war budget, they couldn't do that, and they ended up piecing it together with all of these little vignettes. Um, but I didn't know that that was spawned from just giving the spotlight back to Mickey. Um and then what happens is that Fantasia was not a commercial success the way that Walt had hoped. So it sets this character back even further. You know, he's he's taken a backseat to Donald and Goofy and now his own movie sort of flopped. So it's like, right. what do you do with him at that point? And this is so it flops and it's a failure, but you get a bit of a rebirth again because now that it leads to that Fred Moore era where Fred Moore is now animating Mickey Mouse, he changes his aesthetic and they allow him to be a clown again. And all of a sudden his popularity starts to come back up because he's no longer the straight edge. He's no longer the guy that has the comic relief around him. He is now the comedy within himself and he's appealing to the generation of uh, that generation of children and then World War II. And now you've got to get him straight edge again. I think that's very telling of what people want from an animated character. They want it to be cartoony. They want it to be silly. And I, I think that's also one of... Uh, they didn't really dive into this much because, again, it's not focused on Walt. But I think that that was probably a very big challenge that Walt faced because so much of himself was just injected into the life of this character. And as his career took off more and more and he was beginning to get seen as a very serious producer. You know, if, if Mickey is supposed to be a reflection of him, he might have wanted to tone Mickey down a bit because he very much understood that while Mickey was the face of this company, everybody knew that it was just a projection of himself. And that kind of goes back to what Eric Goldberg was saying in the beginning. Um, he had a really good quote where he said, when he first got to the Disney studios, that he felt like Mickey was encased in amber because he is this icon and we have him up on this pedestal and you want to preserve that perfection, but at the same time, you don't want him sitting there collecting dust either. You want to utilize him. It's such a fine line. And I think that's really the the underlying theme of this documentary is the fine line that you're walking to keep this character relevant and have him be what he needs to be for people but also not straying too far from his original intent. And you see it a lot in World War II because the most chilling thing about this part of the documentary is that dictators were using Mickey Mouse's image in some way to lure children into buying into their message, in some instances luring them into a false sense of security. I won't get into it any further than that, but it was chilling to see that. And that was a very hard lesson that Walt Disney had to learn and they say as much that when people got a hold of the character, copywritten or not, he started getting used in some of the wrong ways. Right, because he symbolized America. And I think that even, you know, Walt being a patriot, had he not used Mickey to support the war effort on the home front, I think regardless if Mickey had not become a symbol here 
he still would have overseas as a metaphor for, you know, going after America. The other big interesting thing um, during this war segment, um, obviously I knew what they were doing with these characters, not just Mickey, it was Donald as well. I didn't realize that Walt was not just using his characters to support the war effort, but the entire studio, when they were producing these animated films, basically of how a gun works and how to use it. And, you know, there's they show this whole animated clip of the mechanics of a gun. You know, they they split it in half. So they give you the inside view and then they do what they do best. They animate it so you can see how it works. Yeah, it was a training video. Yes. Was what it was. Um, so you get through the war. The other th- what I thought was just as interesting as that, though, <clears throat> Post-World War II, the suburbs are pop- popping up all over the country. Yes. Right? And they they suburbanize Mickey. He becomes, as they called him, the mouse next door. And he's got a house, and he's got his, Plu- you know, he's got Pluto, he's got a car, he's got a mortgage, and he's wearing regular clothes. And the general public disliked it. They found it boring. They didn't take to it. And what I thought was interesting is during the Depression... There was something about Mickey being a reflection of America and being a reflection of the everyday man that audiences found appealing. You're doing it again where he's a reflection of America. He's a reflection of the everyday man. But now that's not what people want anymore because, and they go on to say that people are focusing on more time at home and there's more content to consume because now you're getting the advent of television. So... It's interesting that the perspective changed in regards to the court of public opinion and Mickey Mouse. I really had no idea that it was so calculated, though, that these Mickey leisure videos were coming, you know, as a mirror of what America was going through at that point, because this was really the Mickey that I always knew. Yes. That he had a house, he had a car, he had Pluto, you know, uh, one of the first Mickey films that I watched, it was actually um, with the with Chip and Dale, and they're decorating the, yeah, Christmas, the Christmas tree, tree yep. and Pluto's chasing them around. So, being that that was one of my early exposures, and that was you know suburban Mickey was what I knew, I had no idea how much intent there was behind it. Yeah. Um. So you now you're on the downward hill of the roller coaster. And then the roller sto- the roller coaster starts to climb again, right? Because now you have with television coming and with so many studios being afraid of television and Walt Disney seeing it as an avenue for revenue, creativity, and for getting the brand out there and for telling new and unique stories, you get the Mickey Mouse Club. The one thing that I wish they had done here I wish they had focused more on the Mickey Mouse Club and what a phenomenon that was because my father, as a kid growing up, as a kid growing up, I'll tell you a quick story. We would go to Ground Round, like most kids did, when Ground Round was still around. and I, I don't know how many of them are still out there. But you had all of these pop culture references, sports references on the walls, framed photographs and whatever, and they had a framed headshot of Annette Funicello in her Mickey Mouse Club garb. And I did not know who she was, and I was about five or six years old, and I asked my dad, 
and he told me the story of the Mickey Mouse Club. And at that point, I remember the new Mickey Mouse Club. I right. had no idea that this other one existed. So even up to this day, my father will still talk about watching the Mickey Mouse Club and what a big deal that was. I wish they would have focused more on that impact and what that meant for the industry and what that meant for the character because it signed, it kind of seems like a footnote buried in the middle of the documentary. Yeah, I totally agree. And you're glossing over not just the popularity of the show, but like how many careers it launched. And again, I understand that this is not supposed to be about Walt and they're doing their best because as entwined as these two are, they are trying to separate them here. But they completely gloss over what an innovation it was to put on a show like this it's a multi-camera sketch show so the production alone was very innovative and they do hit on it a little bit that at the time where most of these Hollywood studios were terrified of what television was going to do for their box office numbers Walt steered into that but I think that that is such an important parallel to our current state of what streaming services mean for the film industry and you know Disney again pioneered that effort with Disney plus um so I don't think that even though that is a very Walt centric thing they should have blown past it so fast because the other reason that the show was so popular is because there just wasn't a lot out there that's what had everybody tuning in there were not you know, they they didn't even start with five television networks. There were right. three. So that's why you had a big draw, but you still had to produce something worth watching. So, of course, it's Mickey at the forefront of it. And I think that they just could have, you know, had they spent another minute or two there, they would have given a better picture of the phenomena of the Mickey Mouse Club and what that was in and of itself. Right. And then after that, through the 1960s and getting into the Vietnam War, Mickey goes downhill again. And then he gets this really bizarre resurgence that seems to continue to this day where he becomes a symbol of counterculture. How It's, it's insane how little has changed because I think that the quote-unquote Disney adults that people love coming after so much, I think that they within themselves are an example of counterculture. So it's just so interesting to me that in the late 60s and early 70s, this is now the route that Mickey took. And I frankly had no idea that this was even a thing. I, I didn't either. I mean, I knew that people like Andy Warhol, like, you know, he Mickey did become an art piece. Um, but I don't necessarily think that it was out of nowhere because think at, about what is happening with the company in the 60s and 70s. We sort of skipped over it, but at this point we have killed Walt off um, in the 60s um, and the parks have launched at this point. Right. So you did have that popularity, but as far as what was going on with the films, again, Mickey is sort of lost in the shuffle. And then once you get to the 70s, you have... The last of the nine old men films, the last of, you know, the people that were the direct connect to Waltz working on these films and they're not doing anything with Mickey. So it's not a surprise that he got a little lost in the shuffle. And then that's what came out of it. The only thing I really dislike about this part of the documentary is when they do hit on Walt's passing 
Uh, they have Becky Klein, who uh, is, you know, the the face of the Walt Disney archives. Yeah. Uh, we met her when we did the tour. She's a lovely person. She's wonderful. But they said that once Walt passed, his office was basically sitting there collecting dust and nobody really touched it. And that is not true because... They not only tell you on the tour that other executives took over that office and that what we have today is an exact replica with only some of Walt's original things. They've said it in other documentaries. Continuity, guys. Come on. Yeah. Um, I also thought that it was interesting as we're getting into the 1980s now that they actually hit on the copyright laws. Yes. Which, you know. Obviously, in the next few years, it's going to be a big thing because it, it sounds like the copyright on Mickey Mouse is not going to get renewed and he's going to become public domain. We'll see about that. They've had that conversation for years and years and years, and they always seem to extend it, although it doesn't sound like they're willing to do it again. Uh, I don't like the fact that they're acting as apologists for a law, though, because you know, Becky Klein at this point also says, well, you know, there we could have handled it a little bit differently in res- in response to a, in a story where Disney forced uh, a, two preschools in Florida to paint over their murals. And if I remember correctly, it was, I, I think it was Universal, it was either Universal or Hanna-Barbera Bar- Hanna went and painted their characters on instead, just stick it up Disney's you-know-what. But you shouldn't have to apologize for copyright law. The, the character's copywritten. You can't just use it for profit, no matter where it is that you have him. Like, this is this is one of the spots in the documentary where it lost me a little bit. That's what I don't understand, though, is this preschool wasn't making money off of it. They weren't lining people up outside of the gate and charging them five bucks to go look at the Mickey mural. Like, I don't understand that you can't even have it painted on a wall at a children's place. Because they're charging, they're charging a tuition, so to speak. They're they're charging a fee <sighs> to have the kids there. So you can't, you can't. Ha- it's one thing if somebody has toys that they've gone out and bought that kids are playing with, but technically speaking, you're using the image as advertising at a place to where get you're, people to enroll. Yeah, at a place where you're yeah. conducting business for a profit, and you don't have the rights to the character. I'll give you that one. But, I mean, if they weren't on the outside of that building, if they had just done it for the kids on the inside and painted the walls, nobody would have ever known about it. And clearly Disney realized that they were sort of making a big deal over nothing because then you have Becky Klein coming on and saying that they're still trying to learn the best way to handle these legal issues. Um, You know, so there is sort of an apology for that. And this is where this documentary starts to lose me a little bit because you have the timeline jump back to the 30s and they touch on the good and the bad portrayals of Mickey where you have him making these unwanted advances towards Minnie Mouse and then they show Mickey in blackface. And while it's great that they didn't shy away from bringing this up and just trying to bury it, in interview, they say, you know, I don't want to say that Walt was just doing what everyone else was doing at the time. I don't want to say it is what it is, but there's no real apology for it, nor does anyone from Disney comment on it. It's all historians and... um artists commenting on it at this point but nobody from disney 
Right. So you you go back in time to bring this up, and then they kind of just leave it out there because now we're on to Mickey's Christmas Carol. Like it just they just kind of end the conversation. Exactly. And while I appreciate that they that they did make a point of bringing it up and shedding light on it, there's no resolution. Right. And I mean, I think that's where, like, I think I give the documentary a lot of credit because they do kind of go for it. Because it would have been easy to gloss over this, but then they would have been called on it, right? So, I mean, at least they brought... I just don't understand why they didn't bring it to attention earlier when they were in that time frame. Exactly. Because then they could have not only talked about it and brought it to light but they could have also talked about how it was a reflection of the American way of thinking because what we knew up to that point was Mickey was a reflection of the American life during the depression and that's what people gravitated towards but I guess they didn't want to make it seem like this is what people were gravitating towards as well even though it was socially acceptable at the time I'm not saying that I'm not saying right wrong or indifferent but you could have made it all a part of the same conversation and then moved on and it wouldn't have seemed so jarring. Exactly. And kept it in the 30s and then segued right into the war in the 40s. And it wouldn't it, it would have just made so much more sense the way that they've unfolded everything else. And it wouldn't seem like they were trying to shoehorn in just to comment on it and then not do anything about it. Right. But now we are at Mickey's Christmas Carol, which I did not realize was referred to as like the great redemption, the great comeback of Mickey Mouse. I I had assumed that Mickey had been just as popular leading up to that point. I had no idea. I mean, it is one of the most beautiful retellings of this story. I mean, I I think the Muppets take it if pressed as much as I love Mickey's Christmas Carol. There's nothing like Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge. Um but this is this is one of the best. And I I just didn't realize there was so much pressure on it. Right. And then Mickey kind of falls off the map again. And then he, he's back down on the going down the hill on the roller coaster again. But who recognizes that? Disney CEO. Lord and Savior. Bob, Bob Iger, Iger. Who I thought when we saw this upon its release, I thought, huh, that's kind of odd that they're crediting him as the chairman, not the former credited him as the chairman. Now, when we first watched this, it was Friday the 18th. It was on Mickey's birthday. It was yeah. the day that it came out. So now you're talking 48 hours before the big news broke. Right. I thought that that was interesting. And I think that... What he discusses here is every reason why we needed him back as the CEO and every reason why Disney fans are uh, universally celebrating the fact that he's back as the CEO. Because he just hits the nail on the head when he says, like, Mickey, Mickey is not a brand. He's not a brand ambassador. He's not a corporate logo. And this company kind of forgot about that. And he gave a lot of these more modern animators carte blanche to go and make these Mickey shorts, which when we discussed them, I think it was the Mickey 90 part of that discussion was we had said, you know, we watched the shorts and I said, they remind me of those original shorts from the thirties where he's mischievous. 
that was exactly what he had them do was kind of go back in time and go back to the roots of Mickey Mouse. I mean, the Bob Iger just gets it. It is one of the things that just endlessly impresses me about him is that he said that there's a fine line between commerce versus art. And that's what he recognized was that Mickey had become commerce within the last few years. Um, and he didn't have enough of the identity that Walt created. And that's why he wanted to strip everything down. And they had this bake-off is what they called it. And everybody pitched their ideas of how they wanted to bring him back so that he wasn't just... Actually, the the image that they were using was the cruise line logo. Right. And I think that, I, I think that was a very smart choice for the documentary to place that at that exact moment instead of showing like the castles or anything else just because that is how much this it all started with a mouse has grown um so i love that he not only recognized the problem but put his faith in the cast in his staff to figure out a solution for it and Really just let everybody be a fan of Mickey and figure out what the best representation of this character is for the fans and what makes us love him. So that gets us all the way to the end of the documentary where we see the short that they have been working on, Mickey in a Minute. What did you think of the short? Well, I'm glad that they showed it because can you imagine that this whole thing, it's still in production and we don't actually get to see this final product and then we had to wait for it. I love the way that they balance the history of Mickey with the production of this short throughout the documentary because we've kind of glossed over some of the elements of the production. I love that they showed an entire inking and painting segment and they really broke down that process because it's something that you and I have spoke a lot about. We've learned a lot about it. Um, but, you know, the farther we delve into all this new content the farther removed you get from it and I feel like a lot of people if you're not going back and watching these documentaries or watching um things like the reluctant dragon right um where they're showing the animation process or waking sleeping beauty and stuff like that um you know younger kids now might miss that altogether. yeah um, so I love that they did that. I really loved seeing Eric Goldberg get in the director's chair and um, he was in the booth when Brett, is it Ewan or Iwan? I think it's, I think it's Ewan. Forgive I me believe. if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Uh, but I loved seeing Eric Goldberg direct him as he was doing the voice of Mickey for the open. Um, and I feel like Eric Goldberg was really at the helm of this short. So I think he was like the perfect person to like take us through. Um, I, I loved it. I mean, it was so quick and I wanted more of it, but um, I'm glad they delivered on it, especially because you're seeing them make all these drawings. But I, I think it's important for people to see how much goes into this 
just little 60 seconds and and how much work they had to do leading into it um but it was a it was a cute little short and i loved seeing mickey through the ages yeah i liked it because it reminded me of all of those shorts i had seen all of those shorts as a kid i grew up i had a videotape that had all of them on it so i grew up watching them so it was nice revisiting them and i think my only gripe with it similar to you is i just wish it was longer but it was called mickey in a minute so how you only have a very limited amount of time to get it all done but it was nice to see hand-drawn disney animation again and anytime you get to see mickey mouse especially in hand-drawn form it's always a good day um final thoughts on mickey the story of a mouse um is this my favorite documentary on Disney Plus? No. I mean, obviously, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we have Waking Sleeping Beauty up on a pedestal. And and for me, nothing is going to ever be quite like that. Yeah. I also enjoyed Don Hahn's Adventures Through the Walt Disney Archives a lot more because that was much more Walt and company centric. So production wise... This one was not my favorite. I think there are definitely better documentaries on Disney Plus, but for what it was, I enjoyed it. And I think it's important that we have something like this uh, that shows the history of Mickey Mouse, especially leading into the hundred year anniversary of the company. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was good, not great. I give it credit for uh, being gritty when it had to be gritty um, and not just Disney fying everything. Um, but, you know. It it was better than Mickey 90, but that didn't take an awful lot of effort, if I'm being honest with you. It was good. Am I ever going to watch it again? Probably not. I mean, I don't really have a reason to. Technically, I don't have a reason to watch Waking Sleeping Beauty ever again either, yet we watch it frequently. It was good. Uh, I'm glad that they did it. I think that Mickey needed a documentary. I think that people do forget Sometimes, even though everybody likes to say it all started with a mouse, you know, they all like to say it, but I don't think a lot of people actually understand it. So it was good uh, to get that that look into his history. We want to know what you have to say about Mickey, the story of a mouse. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. We don't have any news this week. Uh, you can go back and listen to our Dockside chat number eight that we had just dropped the other day where we discuss all of the big Disney news from the past week, uh, as well as a lot of other topics, a conversation that we had been meaning to get to. So go ahead and listen to that. Uh, but we will be back with our next episode. It'll be a regular episode of monorail radio. I'm sure there's going to be news involved because Bob Iger's going to work for Jackie. I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.